0: You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good morning. Happy Advent season. As we continue our time of worship, you would turn to John 17. We'll be looking at verses 9 to 19 uh, this morning. Just a couple of announcements Let's not forget our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Be praying about that and praying about your role in that. It's a significant game changer as far as reaching the nations. Also, on Thursday, December 7th, Lakeview will be partnering with Joni and Friends Ministry to deliver gifts to families who have been touched by disability and and so uh, it's not too late to give gifts. You can see Ms. Robin Harrison in the uh, foyer after the service. Our cliff will be there as well, uh, and they can answer any questions that you might have. But also, um, on Thursday, December the 7th, they will be meeting at the church at 5 o'clock to deliver these gifts. And so those are two ways that you can serve Our families who have been touched by disability, a very important ministry in in our church. Let's pray and ask the Lord uh, to continue to bless what he has already blessed this morning. Father of mercy, we thank you that we have a triune God to to praise this morning. Praise the Father, praise the Son, and praise the Spirit, three in one. We thank you for songs. We thank you for the new song of the Lamb. We pray, Lord, that the song that has been birthed in every believer's heart would be made even more fervent and strong this morning as we behold you in the face of your Son by the Spirit of your Son through the preaching of the Word of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this Tuesday, December the 5th, marks the 68th anniversary of the beginning of the Montgomery bus boycott, which prompted by Rosa Parks' personal um, protest, black citizens of Montgomery refused to ride the city buses in protest of What was clear, racist uh, segregation on the buses. And this protest, this boycott, lasted 381 days, beginning on December the 5th, and it extended to December the 20th of 1956. Uh, The Montgomery Improvement Association, known as the MIA, uh, led by Martin Luther King Jr., recruited over 300 cars to serve as as carpools uh, to help uh, these citizens during this time of the the boycott. But in November of the following year, 11 months into this boycott, um, city officials petitioned a state court for an injunction banning the carpool because it was costing the city money. And on November the 13th, Martin Luther King Jr. was sitting at the defendant's table. He was disheartened. Uh, He was discouraged um, when he was told that the Montgomery Improvement Association, the MIA, would be heavily uh, fined to compensate for all the lost revenue. Well, during the recess... Uh, a, a reporter slipped King a note from the AP Wire. The Supreme Court had just declared Alabama's laws regarding segregation on buses as unconstitutional. Victory had been achieved. And yet, in spite of this, the Alabama judge enforced that injunction against the carpool and here's the kicker legal technicalities delayed the implementation of the supreme court's ruling it would take five weeks five weeks and so with the alabama judge ruling against the carpool those five weeks became the most difficult time for the black citizens of montgomery indeed during those five weeks the black citizens had victory right they had victory declared by the supreme court and yet it got more difficult for them during those five weeks uh, they had to walk long, um, in, in, case, many, in many cases, several miles to work through the cold weather of December. And yet, they operated from a posture of victory. And on this day of the, the first advent, where we think first and foremost about the hope of the first advent and the, the hope of the second advent. Uh, we're reminded from these citizens how hope fueled their pilgrimage during those five weeks. Indeed, they operated between the already and the not yet. And though it was difficult in those, between those two periods, they functioned from victory and they functioned fueled by hope. Now, as we begin the Advent season, let us remember that's what Christmas signals, that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, has come and he has secured the victory. He has secured the victory from um, the power of sin and death, the devil and the world. That would come through his life, his his obedient life to the Father as our substitute. It would come by his cross where he satisfies God's wrath on sin, penal substitution. It would come by his resurrection from the grave where God the Father signaled the debt had been paid, victory had been secured. It would come by his ascension as he took that victory to heaven for his people. And yet, even though we live in light of that victory, we live in the not yet of the full realization of that victory. Between the already and the not yet, there will be difficult times. Just like the black citizens of Montgomery face those difficult times, in those five weeks, we operate from victory fueled by hope. And one of the reasons we have this hope, central reason we have this hope, yes, Jesus has won the victory, but Jesus ever lives to intercede for us. We see this even previewed in this prayer in John chapter 17. This is the great high priestly prayer of Jesus just before he goes to the cross and it gives us a preview of the kind of prayers he makes for his people. In the interim between the already and the not yet of the realization of the fullness of victory. And we saw, we saw last time that in verses 1 to 5, he prayed for himself. And now, in the middle of verses 6 to 19, this is really the heart of the prayer. He's praying for all the present disciples. Of course, that does not in any way exclude the future disciples who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in verse 9, before we get into the heart of his intercession, we read something provocative. He says, I am praying for them. Now, who is them? Well, verse 6 tells us, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And so he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me for they are yours." So it's interesting that he is hours from the cross, and he is praying a very focused prayer, a specific prayer. Now this may not fit your doctrine of Christ, your Christology, but we have to allow the scriptures to inform our fallen understanding of doctrine. Hours from the cross, he is praying He says, not for the world, he is praying for those whom the Father has given him out of the world. Those are the ones that are on his mind. Those are the ones that are on his radar. Of course, it would be wrong to say that he isn't praying for those who would presently be in the world, but would Come to believe in him. In fact, in verse 20, if you'll look with me, we'll get to this next time. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. But he is praying essentially for those whom the Father has given him. Those are the ones he has on his mind as he's about to make his way to the cross. As he directs himself to satisfy divine justice. Well, all that said, it's not till verse 11 that we really get to the heart of his intercession. But notice in verse 10, he says, all mine are yours. So these are referring to those the father's given him and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. So these are the ones that will most magnify the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Those whom the father gives him from the world. By sovereign grace, gifts from the Father to the Son. Verse 11, and this brings us to the first point. What's interesting is the first thing he prays for these is that they would be kept. It's one of the great arguments for eternal security, that they would be kept. Jesus prays that the believers would be kept, and in this first case, for unity. Look with me in verse 11. Verse He says, and I am no longer in the world. Now, he is in one sense because he hasn't yet ascended to the Father, but it's good as done. That's interesting because in just a few hours, he's going to a cross, but he knows that the cross is not going to be the final word. He knows that he's going to be raised. He knows he's going to ascend to the Father, and so it's good as done. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Who's they? Those whom the Father's given him. Which you have given me that they, notice, and he says, Father, keep them. I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So the first request that he makes for these disciples, those whom the Father has given him, is that they would be kept. Keep them in your name. Now you think about the great priestly blessing uh, from Numbers 6. Lord, bless you and keep you. And now we have the great high priest, the one in all, all the priests of the old covenant points. He's giving us more information as to what this looks like. He says, keep them in your name. Matthew Henry, I think, is very helpful here. He says, keep them in the knowledge and the fear of thy name, whatever it costs them. Keep them in the interest of thy name and let them ever be faithful to this. Keep them in thy truths, in thine ordinances, in the way of thy commandments. So eternal security is more than just having fire insurance. It's actually to be transformed for God in Jesus Christ. Keep them in thy name. Keep them committed to your name. Keep them committed to your commandments. Now, here's the question. Jesus is about to win the victory. Why would we need keeping? Why would he need to pray this? Why is this his first request? Well, again, going back to the analogy with King and the citizens of Montgomery, this victory would be achieved definitively, but it would overlap with the present age, which is still under the power of the evil one. In fact, John himself would write in 1 John 5, he says that this world lies under the power of the evil one. So we still live in a dangerous world. We're still vulnerable in a very real sense. So praise God, we have a high priest who prays, keep them in thy name. J.C. Ryle, again, a great insight here. The special intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ is one grand secret of the believer's safety. That's a beautiful statement. He, that is the believer, is daily watched and thought of and provided for with unfailing care by one whose eye never slumbers and never sleeps. They never perish because he never ceases to pray for them. Isn't that beautiful? They stand and persevere to the end, not because of their own strength and goodness. Praise the Lord for that. But because Jesus intercedes. And so if you're here this morning and you recognize, to borrow the language from Don Newton, your very present danger, toils, and snares, and your propensity to inconsistency in your walk. J.C. Ryle, and more importantly, the Apostle John has just made your day. We have a Savior who prays that we be kept in the Father's name. Now, one of the dangers is division. And that brings us to the last part of that verse 11. Notice, keep them that they may be one, even as we are one. So the oneness here refers uh, to the union, the oneness, the unity of the people of God, yet in all our various distinctives, all right? This oneness, this unity is to reflect the unity of the one God. There is oneness in the Godhead and there's plurality in the Godhead. The one in whom the church is built And so our oneness and plurality images this true and living God, okay? And it serves as a defense, an apologetic witness for our God. Now, this would be achieved definitively by Jesus' reconciliation. And so in one sense, we've already been united. We have been unified. Uh, We are one because Jesus... Has made reconciliation, all right? Uh, He reconciled us to the Father, and he has reconciled us to each other. And yet, again, we live in the not yet, don't we? We live in the already, but the not yet. Now, to be clear, he's not praying that there be one worldwide denomination. Uh, That's why... Uh, this idea of a one-world, one-world denomination, was most clearly seen during the time of the medieval period, when the church was most corrupted. And so, that's not what he's praying for here, um, but he is praying that we would be one with regard to our commitment to the Father's name, and to His gospel, and to the core truths of the gospel. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. He is praying for that because here's the deal division in a body bears false witness to who God is. He's one. It also bears false witness to an accomplishment of Jesus, that He has accomplished reconciliation for us. And so when we are divided, and thank God we don't see this at Lakeview. We see it in many churches. When we are divided, we are saying the cross, the resurrection, and the gift of the Holy Spirit is not enough to unite us. And so Jesus is praying, keep them in your name. Keep them for unity, that they may be one. The second thing we pray here, we see here, is that Jesus prays that they would be kept for joy remarkable prayer notice in verse 12 while I was with them he's speaking here of the original disciples I kept them in your name I was the one who kept them which you have given me again you don't get you can't get around that language that's the primary way he describes disciples those whom the father's given me I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's speaking here of Judas and he's not saying, well, I had one failure. I succeeded with all the other 11, but I had one failure. That's not what he's saying. John will later say, or elsewhere in his epistle, 1 John two nineteen. They went out from us, that is, they went out professing, but they did not belong to us. For if they had really belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that they never really belonged to us. He's speaking about those who make profession of faith, but they don't endure, they don't persevere. Judas being the case in point. Of course, this was, according to verse 12, the fulfillment of a prophecy. What is that prophecy? It's a prophecy that David made that actually happened to him. But this also is a reminder how we read our Old Testaments. We're to read them through the lens of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And in Psalm 41, verse 9, here's what David wrote. And this happened to David, but it pointed to something even greater the greater David and a greater betrayal. Psalm 41, verse 9 My close friend who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And Jesus is saying that pointed to the ultimate betrayal of Judas. But for those the Father gives the Son, they will be kept. And notice verse 13, they will be kept for joy. Verse 13. But now I am coming to you. That is, I am ascending to you. I'm not going to stay dead. He is convinced that death is not the final word, and we are grateful for that. I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, that is, the disciples... May have my joy, notice my joy, because it's the life of Christ lived through us, my joy fulfilled in themselves. Don't miss the location of this, this prayer. He is ours from being tortured and laid up on a Roman cross, where he will not only bear physical suffering, he will bear the wrath of God. And notice what he has on his mind, our joy. Our joy. He has our joy on his mind. You know, joy, rejoice, or joyful appears 359 times in the ESV Bible. Joy is a gift. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. It's also a command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Philippians 4 verse 4. Joy would be crucial for these disciples and all future disciples because as Matthew Henry writes, joy would guard them from the empty pleasures the tempter uses to bait his hooks. You see, if you have joy, you're not tempted by, by phantom joys, by, by lesser joys, right? And that's what the devil uses to bait his hook, is faux joy, phantom joy, costume jewelry joy. But if you have joy, you're not tempted by that. The reason there's division in families and division in churches is joylessness. You're not tempted by these things when you have joy. And given the, the, the struggles and the pains that these disciples were about to face, it's clear that this joy was not dependent on their circumstances. In fact, their circumstances were going to get really dark, and yet he is saying, I'm praying for their joy. Paul will write in 2 Corinthians uh, verse 6 and 10, Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Now, that can only make sense if it's an alien joy that is communicated through us. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's my joy. It's his joy that will be communicated to his disciples as they are kept by God by the Holy Spirit. But let's not miss this. The fact that this is on his mind before his arrest before his torture before his cross drives home how devastating joylessness is for a believer this is this is a central thought on his mind he recognizes joylessness is devastating for God's people devastating it's not normal it eclipses the glory of God in our lives. In fact, it's a sin to be joyless because we're commanded to be joy, to be joyful. That brings us to the third prayer or aspect of this prayer. He prays that believers, yes, would be kept for joy, would be kept from the evil one. All of these travel together, by the way. You can't live in sin and have joy. Uh, So he prays that we would be kept from the evil one. Notice in verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. That's two times he's going to say that, not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I don't want to take you out of them. I don't want them out of it because they have a mission, we're going to see that, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so Jesus connects the world's hate, verse 14, to the evil one in verse 15. And it's not just the hostility of the world that poses a threat, it's the corruption of the world which is also implied again in 1 john 5:19 even though the serpent's head has been crushed he still exercises a tragic sway over this present age 1 john 5:19 says the world lies in the power of the evil one and Jesus is praying that we would be kept from the evil one as the evil one works through the world's system. But I want you to notice here, verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Verse 16, but they are not of the world. That, those statements um, are crucial in understanding the believer's relationship to the world. Now, Joe Aldrich in a, a book called Lifestyle Evangelism, he points out there are four possible ways for a professing believer to relate to the world. And I find this instructive because not all of these ways are correct. The first way that a believer can relate to the world, he calls rejection. You just reject the world. Uh, th- this involves withdrawal, It it, it involves isolation from sinners. This was the approach of the monastic movement as they tried to keep sin outside of their monasteries. By the way, it didn't happen because here's the problem. Sinners were within the walls of the monastery, right? This is certainly the easier path. It's the path that I instinctually prefer just stay away from it all, okay? It's an easier path. In fact, we have seen through even redemptive history, this is an instinct of God's people. So Moses in Numbers 11 wanted to be taken from the world. Elijah in 1 Kings 19 wanted to be taken from the world. Jonah in Jonah 4 wanted to be withdrawn from this world, and God did not permit that. So rejection is not the correct path. A second approach is just the opposite, immersion, immersion in the world. This is close proximity with the world, but this person has no distinctive message or no distinctive lifestyle. They claim to be a Christian, but they look like the world and they sound like the world. And hence, no impact whatsoever, except the impact is on them. In a negative way. A third approach, split. This is what he calls split adaptation. This is spiritual schizophrenia. This person tries to be a citizen of two worlds. And so this person generally drifts to majority opinion. So on Sunday, he acts like the one who just rejects the world. And Monday through Saturday, he's like the one who is immersed in the world. And so this person is kind of like a spiritual schizophrenic. The fourth and the biblical approach to the world is critical participation. We are to be spiritually and morally distinct from the world, but not socially segregated from it. This is the most challenging position because it requires attention of being in the world, but not of the world. This person will take his hits or her hits, but there will be fruit born from it. Martin Lloyd-Jones helps us here. When the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. Now, he's talking about being weird for the glory of God, all right? but just different morally and spiritually. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. It should not be our ambition to be as much like everybody else as we can. Our ambition should be to be like Christ. And the more like him we become, the more we shall be unlike everybody who is not a Christian. And so he prays, Jesus prays here that we will be kept from the evil one and yet we would be immersed in the world that's under the sway of the evil one for Christ's sake. The next part of this intercession, verse 17, Jesus prays that believers would be kept, notice, through sanctification. Verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So it is the Lord who keeps us, but he uses means. And a central means he employs is our growth in godliness. You could say we're kept for joy and we're kept from the evil one as we are sanctified. Now, what is sanctification? In one sense, you could say we've been definitively sanctified already. We are holy and in the sight of God. We are saints in the sight of God because of the holiness of Jesus. But what we're speaking here of, what Jesus is praying here, is for progressive sanctification, where we're made in practice what we are in position. It's the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man and enabled more and more to die to sin, and to live for righteousness. That is sanctification. And notice how we're sanctified. He says we are sanctified by the means of the truth. Thy word is truth. And all through Scripture, all through Scripture, you see that life results from the going forth of the word of God. That's why we have an expository pulpit at Lakeview. That's why we sing songs rooted in the word of God. Because life comes from the going forth of the word of truth. And only by that truth. One of my favorite verses on the scriptures in Psalm 119, verse 107. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. God's word sanctifies us because it channels divine life from heaven as we come under its sway, as the truth of the gospel comes to bear on our thoughts and on our affections and on our wills. This means the only way for you to be sanctified. And remember this, without holiness, it's impossible to please the Lord. The only way you won't even see God, in fact, Hebrews says. The only way to be sanctified is to be immersed in the Word of God. A wordless Christian will not grow. The next part of this verse, Jesus prays. And these are this is connected. If you're being sanctified, you're gonna see in verse 18 Jesus prays that believers would be kept for mission. Notice, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Let me give you four points here quickly. Sanctification always issues into mission. Always. A sanctified, a growing believer and a non-missional believer do not exist. Sanctification always issues into mission. True holiness is missional, all right? Second, it is Jesus who sends us, all right? Third, we are sent, notice, into the world, sent into the world, which means we are to enter into the lives of unbelievers and immerse them in the gospel while at the same time Not immersing yourselves in their worldliness. And then fourth, he says, just as you sent me into the world, the disciples' mandate is grounded by the mission of God. What has been known as the Missio Dei. Which means, just as Jesus in his first advent came, by making himself of no reputation and coming in the likeness of man and humbling himself to the point of death, that becomes the prototype for mission. We lay aside our, our privileges. We lay aside our preferences. And we go low for the sake of those who do not know this message and believe it. But where would the fuel for this kind of life come from? This won't come from a New Year's resolution. Love is the only fuel for this, this kind of life, this missional life, where the mission of God becomes your mandate for your life. Last night I heard a a football player talking about after a win, this is our purpose. Well, that may be okay, but that's a secondary purpose. Your purpose as a Christian is the gospel for the sake of the nations. But where will this kind of life come from? That brings us to the final point as we close. The last part of this prayer for the present disciples, Jesus prays that, Jesus, uh, that believers would be kept by Christ's consecration. Verse 19, and for their sake, I consecrate myself And that's the same verb for sanctify. The ESV just translates it consecrate, because I think they're picking up a a language from Exodus 40. I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. You see that? The ground of our sanctification is Christ consecrating himself. This reminds us how seriously God takes sanctification. That sanctification, your sanctification, is so important that the eternal Son of God would consecrate himself for your sanctification. This takes us back to the Old Testament priest where God commands Moses in Exodus 40, get this, to put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him. That's the high priest that he may serve as priest. So Israel's high priest had two central functions. One, to offer a blood atonement to satisfy God's justice on sin. And then by the ground of that atonement to make intercessions for God's people. Well, Jesus Christ, our great high priest has no need to put on holy garments. They put on holy garments because they represented a righteousness they did not have themselves. In fact, sacrifices had to be made for the priests themselves because they were sinners like us. He had no need to put on holy garments because he was born with original righteousness and then he fulfilled all righteousness as our substitute. And this one who needed no robes but had a perfect righteousness He made the perfect offering for our atonement, but it was not the blood of calves and goats and lambs. It was his own blood. He was the offerer and he was the offering. And having satisfied God's wrath on sin, this high priest ascended to the heavens where he ever lives to make intercession for his people. Why? So that we could be kept. Kept for joy. Kept for unity. Kept for our sanctification. Kept for God. It is that message that should stir us to faith, hope, and love. It is that message. So there we have it. This prayer has been called the transcript. Of Jesus' present intercession for his church. Praise the Lord that we have a high priest who made atonement for our sins once for all by his own death, and he ever lives to intercede for us. And that's what he's praying there, it's what he's praying here for us this morning. May it stir us, may it awaken us from our spiritual slumbers. And for those of you, as Adam and the the musicians come forward, for those of you who have not yet embraced this high priest, who have not yet embraced this, this Savior, all that He has prayed for in this passage does not apply to you, but it can. But you have to come to Him on His terms. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of our Savior, confess your sin. Confess, Jesus, you took my sin as my great high priest. You satisfy God's righteous requirements for my sin. And you were raised and you lived to make intercession for me. Why don't you confess him this morning? Won't you come? We'll have pastors here at the end of the aisles. Maybe you'd like to pray. Maybe you have questions about this gospel, whatever it is. Won't you come this morning as we stand and sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today.